Hello, and welcome to the Better Strangers podcast. My name is Matt Hirschberger. I am the writer, editor, and publisher of Better Strangers, which is a publication that focuses on life and books and parenting and nature, all while living through the apocalypse, or at least what feels like the apocalypse. This week, I'm going to be talking about the internet and why, if you're feeling really bummed out about the state of the world, it's not just because of the state of the world. It's also because you're spending so much time on the internet, which is specifically designed to completely fuck up your brain. I come to this topic through a decent amount of experience. I spent five years working as a writer and editor at a travel publication, which did a lot of what you would call clickbait. Um, I also did writing that I was proud of there, but you know, a lot of what we were doing was basically trying to hack the human brain as a way to get you to pay more attention. And I think that a lot of people, especially people who are millennials or older, don't necessarily understand what the internet is. Because when we were coming up, we were told that it was this information economy. It was a place where you could find anything you wanted and learn anything you wanted. And the early form of the internet actually did have an okay amount of that. Um, but as it's grown more and more monetized, um, it has become less an information economy and more of an attention economy. So the first book I would recommend if you're interested in this topic is Tim Wu's The Attention Merchants. Uh, the, the book is kind of a short history of the entire, you know, of the entire advertising industry, um, which really started with snake oil salesmen. Uh, before snake oil salesmen, we didn't need advertisers because uh, back then everyone just trusted their doctor to give them the right medicine. Snake oil was a scam, and so the only way they could sell it to people is by making wild claims using uh, advertising. So that was the real birth of this you know, major U.S. industry was uh, basically as a way of uh, defrauding the American public. Eventually, it got regulated out of existence until the advertisers were brought back into the fold by the U.S. government during World War I to take part in the propaganda campaigns. Um, they were trying to use as many psychological tricks as possible. The early advertising industry employed uh, the nephew of Sigmund Freud as one of their main consultants on how to kind of like trick people into buying things. But this early propaganda phase was so successful in the United States and to, to, a, to an extent in Britain that Hitler actually modeled his propaganda in Nazi Germany off of what we had done in the United States. And so after the war, we had hired all of these people to do all of this major propaganda. Like, you know, Dr. Seuss did propaganda. Bugs Bunny did propaganda. And afterwards, we had all of these people who had these skills and they needed to be applied to something. So they applied it towards the post-war economy, which you know the history of if you watched the show Mad Men. Uh, one actually interesting thing I want to bring up about the World War II era is um, is you may have heard that carrots make it better, make it easier for you to see in the dark. That's actually, I have my, one of my buddies is an optometrist and he says like, that's not really true. Like there is a, there is, you know, a chemical in carrots that does help with eyesight, but the amount that you would need to eat to like make your eyesight better is, is so much that it would like kill you. Like it would be too many carrots. Um, the reason that this is such a widespread belief is because during World War II, the British, the, the Royal Air Force in Britain, developed new bomb sites, which made their bombs way more accurate than they had previously been. 
Now, they understood that a lot of their planes were getting shot down over Germany while they were bombing it, and they knew that if the Germans suddenly saw that they were way more accurate with their bombs, that they would know that there was a new piece of technology and they would try and get it from these planes. So, you know, they did a few things by, like, you know, trying to... Uh, trying to make the, the bomb site self-destruct or having a way to, that they wouldn't possibly crash and survive. Uh, but another thing that they did is they did a massive propaganda campaign to the British public because they knew that there were Nazi spies there, claiming that the reason that the RAF was such were so good at hitting their target was because they ate their carrots and the carrots improved their eyesight. Um, this did fool Germany, and it also fooled the entire British public and all of the American servicemen who were in Britain. And now it is a rumor that is believed in at least those three countries. Um, you know, carrots aren't bad for your eyesight, but, you know, they're not actually as good as, you know, parents have been telling their children since then. I think this is a really good way of illustrating how, like, a lot of the times the advertisings, the advertising industry or the propaganda industry trying to get out information, it may have different purposes uh, than the ones that we think of as being, like, what it obviously would be, which is to just inform us. So um, that's an interesting bit from that era. I'll come back to that later. Um, but basically, the advertising industry really hit its heyday uh, when the Internet started coming out specifically social media. Um, you know, Google for a long time resisted advertising, but now Google, um, and this is actually lower than it has been in recent years, but Google gets 80% of its total revenue from its ad services. Um, that's because uh, they are able to hold your attention and they're able to, you know, you spend so much time Googling stuff on the internet that they um, are able to serve an enormous number of ads there. Facebook gets 98% of its revenue from advertising. And Twitter, I believe, is somewhere around 95. So when we talk about these companies as social media companies, that's actually not true. These are advertising companies. The reason that they're so effective is because, uh, you know, advertisers have always had trouble getting people to pay attention to their ads. And the reason's been that eventually we hate commercials, and so we've found ways to get around them. You know, they had them on... Um, they had them on the radio, and then we got the scan button. So as soon as it would start playing, you know, commercials, we would hit it, and we'd go to the next thing. On TV, you know, we eventually developed TiVo and DVR as a way of skipping over the commercials. So they had to get sneakier about the ways that they served ads to us. One of the ways they did that was through, like, product placement. There's that amazing scene in Wayne's World where he's saying, like, I will not sell out while eating, like, a Pizza Hut pizza. Um, but they did that quite a bit, and then people started to catch on to the product placement in movies, and it started working less and less. And what the internet gave them is it was an opportunity to serve people ads in their own homes in the conversations that they were having with their family and friends. Um, you know, you're, you're, you've got posts from your friend's most recent trip, and then you've got an advertisement, you know, that says like, you know, oh, look, your friend went to Croatia. Here's a ticket to Croatia or something like that. Um, so they got way more refined and they found ways to more and more sneakily slip their way into our lives. Now, you know this, of course, like you've had the weird thing where you've thought about something and all of a sudden it appears on your phone. But you might not know how, they, um, how they've gotten to a point where they can command so much of your attention. Uh, so one of the things that the social media algorithms have really seized on is your cognitive biases. And these are things that your brain does before you have any sort of like, you know, rational conscious thought. They're just things you do automatically. Um, one of the reasons that doom scrolling is such a problem and that we get so depressed uh, spending a lot of time on the Internet is because of our negativity bias. 
Negativity bias exists for a very good reason. Um, if you are uh, out in nature, it makes more sense for you to pay attention to the thing that's going wrong than it does for you to pay attention to the beautiful butterfly going by because the thing that's going wrong could end up killing you. Uh, so we've evolved to pay attention to stuff that's going poorly rather than stuff that's going well. Um, you know, with social media, they basically seize on this by showing you more negative information, more negative content than they do positive content because uh, it's a way of basically tricking your brain into spending more time on the internet. The more time you spend on Facebook, the more Facebook can charge its advertisers. So, you know, for me, I worked uh, when I was working for this, uh, this clickbait. It wasn't a clickbait publication, but we did do clickbait. Um, we had all these sorts of tricks to hold people's attention. So we knew that, you know, the most important thing for getting someone to click on an article was the photo that we chose as the feature image. Anything that showed a face was more likely to get clicked on than something that didn't show a face. A woman's face was the best, and a woman's face with striking eyes was the best, um, particularly if they're very, very attractive or have an interesting face. That matters more than anything else on whether or not your article gets clicked. Then it's the headline, and the headline has a lot more to do with, um, you know, playing off of people's desire to either read something that they'll agree with or to read something that they'll completely disagree with and then argue with it, which was, you know, neither one, it didn't matter if people hated our articles, they were, as long as they were sharing it, we didn't care. And so we would have all these sorts of tricks to get you to click on something and to, to read something, and we wanted that to trigger something in your brain that wasn't just the rational function of your brain. We wanted you to click on it before you even realized what you were doing. So one of the examples of a headline that we used was, um, and this is my least favorite, is uh, science says that, you know, it's uh, healthy to drink alcohol or something like that. Now, science doesn't say anything. Science isn't a person, and science doesn't have one opinion. It's a constantly ongoing and changing discussion. What happened is there would be one study that would come out and would have a correlation between um, drinking a few beers each night and better and longer life. That's a correlation. It needs to be replicated. It needs to be peer reviewed. Um, you know, and, and, but the one study would make for the good headlines. So your journalists journalists like myself would put on someone says science says that you know travel is good for you and it's like well of course people who are following a travel site want to hear that travel is good for them they want to hear that they're making the world a better place so what we were doing there was confirmation bias we were trying to say something that we knew that you would agree with and get you to click on it just so you could see how right you were and, you know it's worth pointing out that the stuff that we were writing about wasn't lies like we weren't you know there were times that we weren't necessarily representing it the best possible way. There were times that the text of the article said it in the correct way, but the headline, because of editorial pressures, said the wrong thing, and the headline would actually be misleading. Um, it's just differing incentives. So if you're running this sort of publication and you're trying to keep it afloat, you need lots of advertising revenue. You don't get lots of advertising revenue without lots of clicks. You don't get lots of clicks without playing on these very, very primal um, tricks that, you know, we would kind of use. So um, this is, I think this is important to realize with any journalism, because my, my original training is in journalism, uh, my undergrad. And I think that a lot of people don't realize that all journalists have differing incentives and differing pressures in terms of the information that they're delivering to you. 
One of the best books to read on this topic is uh, Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman's book, Manufacturing Consent. One of the things they talk about there, uh, they've got a list of ways that, um, you know, uh, journalists kind of collude with the United States government and don't actually take many stances that go too hard against it. Um, like, you know, like we kind of believe that they should, given what, what this country is. <clears throat> and part of that reason is that the United States government is the source of all of journalists, you know, information about what's going on in the government. So if you have a, um, you know, a high ranking official who is leaking you information and then you publish an article attacking that official or their department, they can revoke access and you no longer get any of the information that you need. So when journalists write stuff about the government, they do have to kind of toe a line. Um, in recent years, with Donald Trump, we've seen that some administrations are very willing to revoke access to the White House if you speak out too much against them. You know, Trump just, he famously would kick reporters out if he didn't like the questions that they were asking. Um, you know, this was considered a big breach of etiquette, but at the same time, um, you know, this is something that governments have been doing for a very long time. Um, you know, they also attack whistleblowers. Uh, they want to have a complete, you know, like Barack Obama was actually really bad at attacking whistleblowers within the government, uh, tried to really crack down on leaks. And the thing is, is if you don't have leaks like this, then the only way you can get access to the government's information is by basically playing ball. So that's just one of the things that Chomsky and Herman go through in manufacturing consent. Um, but I think it's a pretty important thing for, um, for, for us to have an understanding of, uh, because we do need to get information about the world, but every place that we're getting information from has uh, a different, you know, has different people funding it. It has different incentives in order to get the information that they need. Um, you know, I, I, one thing that I, a publication that is very well known, but that has some people are skeptical of is the Washington Post because it's been bought by Jeff Bezos. Um, you know, the, when you ask, you know, reporters questions like, oh, does Bezos tell you what to write? The answer is almost certainly no. He's not in the newsroom. He's not dictating editorial. But if you are a reporter and you want to report negatively on something that Jeff Bezos or Amazon is doing, you have to make a professional decision. Am I going to risk my career? Is this going to anger my boss? Is this going to mean that I'm not going to be able to get certain promotions or raises in the future? Does this hinder my ability to do my job on other stories? And so they call it a chilling effect um, where uh, journalists have don't actually actively get suppressed, but they know that there will be certain consequences for writing about certain topics, so they choose to write about different topics. So this is something that happens literally everywhere, um, and one of the ways you can kind of get a sense of where a publication is coming from is to know where its money comes from. So, you know, if all of its money is coming from subscribers, then what their main incentive is is to please you, the reader, which doesn't mean that they're being more objective. It could mean that they're saying stuff, they're doing more confirmation bias stuff. They're just trying to tell you what you want to hear. If there's money coming from advertisers, then the advertisers do have the ability, if they write a negative story about that advertiser, to pull funding, which could mean that people will lose jobs. So editors need to make a decision when they do stuff that's attacking certain corporations that may have a stake in their newspaper. That becomes even harder when 
all of these corporations are owned by like a few conglomerates. Um, it gets much trickier to say anything that might be combative towards just, you know, global capitalism. Um, and so, you know, that happens kind of regardless. Uh, there's, you, you know, knowing where the money is coming from in your, in your, from whatever platform you're reading on um, is important if you want to have a sense of what they're going to be avoiding and what they're going to be skirting around. When it comes to the internet specifically, I think it's important for uh, millennials and older to really understand um, how this is an advertising platform and how, how it kind of works because we're not natives. I went and did a talk at a local school about kind of propaganda and about advertising on the internet, and a lot of these kids just seemed to already know what I was telling them. Um, Zoomers and younger have come up in this, and so, you know, if you've ever noticed, like, that your boomer parents are, you know, shockingly gullible for stuff that they see online, it's because they didn't come up with online. Like, you know, for them, checking the URL or the website and checking to see if it's reliable isn't something that they ever had to do. They only ever had like four news sources growing up and it was all Walter Cronkite in the New York Times and then your local newspaper. You just inherently trusted these publications to be writing stuff. And you know, they shouldn't have trusted it. But you know, like they there was a lot more trust in those institutions and there wasn't the same sort of literacy and skepticism that was being taught as there was for us who came up in the age of the internet. But even though we came up in the age of the internet, we came up in the age of the early internet where it actually may have been an information superhighway and we were actually getting um, all of this, you know, we were able to access all of this, you know, this entire, the entire library of human thought. Like for a while we had this very idealist version of the internet. These kids came up in the social media era and they know that advertising is um, the major driver of, of what makes money for all of these, these platforms. That doesn't mean that they're inherently digi digitally literate. It just means that they're natives. And so this stuff is a lot less difficult for them to comprehend. And it, it, there's a lower barrier to learning it than there is for us. So the final bit I want to talk about is kind of if you are feeling super depressed about the state of, well, just depressed, period. If you're feeling depressed, period, and you think that the internet might be part of the problem, what do you do to get off the internet a little bit? Um, first of all, I just got shout out, um, listen to the La Tigre song, get off the internet over and over and over again. Eventually that will just like kind of stick in your head. And after you've been on the internet for an hour, your brain is going to start going, get off the internet. And you'll, you know, you'll eventually, you'll eventually do it. Um, but there's a book I'd suggest for this. Um, there's how to do nothing resisting the attention economy by Jenny O'Dell. This was on Barack Obama's best books of 2019 list. Um, and she really, she's an artist based out of the Bay Area and talks about how she found that the internet was really starting to take over and absorb a lot more of her life than she was comfortable with. So um, one of the things that she suggests is instead of just going on these kind of like digital detoxes where, you know, you're putting your phone in a box and walking away from it, um, what you're doing instead is actually using the internet and using your phone as a way of supplementing kind of getting out more into the real world. You know, uh, the example that she uses and the one that I've really adopted myself, she uses bird apps like the Merlin Bird ID or the iNaturalist app. Uh, there's also one called Seek, which uh, my kids found to be really fun because it's like a scavenger hunt. 
And you can go out and go for a walk out in the street, and then you can point your camera at a plant or at an animal, and it'll actually identify it for you. And you can take part in citizen science projects. You can go on like bird watching walks where you try and identify and count as many birds as possible. And that data ends up being used by local scientists as a way of kind of trying to get a sense of what's in the area. So um, that's kind of one way you can kind of get out there. But if you're not into the whole nature stuff, you could just as easily do like Pokemon Go or just a gamified version of getting outside. Those things manage to use the technology, uh, which, you know, in many other ways is depressing you to get you out and going for getting exercise and getting fresh air, which are both things that we know improve your mood. So that's one um, that's that's one thing that you can do. Um, she also, you know, there also is digital detoxes. There are apps now on, at least on the iPhones, I'm sure there are on Android too, that are screen time apps. And what those can do is you can set time limits for specific apps. So like for me, I have it where um, I want to do, um, I'll do like a, an hour a day total of Instagram or TikTok, which sounds like a lot, but promise me, I've gotten that down from a much higher a much higher number. So all my social apps, I've kind of like, you know, I've, I've got a limit on it. And then what'll happen is it'll, screen will go blank when I, when I hit it and it'll say, you've run out of time for today. I can choose to extend it, but it's a good reminder. Like, Hey man, maybe, maybe cool that you've spent a lot of time doing this today. Um, there are other apps which require you to do more to get through that you can, that, which will shut them off and then will make you jump through more hoops if that's something that you need. Um, and then, you know, it'll also track your, your, you know, your screen time on a weekly basis and you can get a sense of what your average has been, what's been really absorbing your time. And, um, you know, sometimes it's a little sobering to see, like, look down and be like, oh, I spent like six hours on my phone today, uh, which is always, always kind of sucks. Um, but another thing you can do is, um, you know, when I talk about kind of like these, these cognitive tricks, one of the ways that these websites... Uh, hook you in is by using certain colors. So, you know, the color red, uh, scientists know that humans pay more attention to it because in nature, red usually means something important. It could mean food. It could mean blood. Uh, it could mean a face. You could see a face that's flushed, which could mean that they want to do sexy things, or it could be that they're angry and they want to kill you. Um, red typically means important things. And so are our, our, we've just trained, you know, we, we evolved to pay more attention to it. And that's the reason that your notification buttons on your phone are red. Uh, they really draw your attention and, and you just zip straight to them. One of the ways around that is to put your phone on grayscale. Um, this is not the best if you're watching like a, if you go on like Instagram and like looking at pretty pictures, but grayscale is a way of kind of like making it so that part of the brain can't be hacked in the same way. Um, so, you know, there are all sorts of tricks like that to help you kind of get off the internet. I, I think the best thing is to understand that these companies are actively exploiting your attention and that they are not doing it with much concern for what it will do to you. Um, you know, when you hear that there are all of these like tech giants who won't let their kids have phones and won't let them go online, it's because they know what they're doing. And they wouldn't want to expose their people to it. Now you, you are cattle. You're you're there to make them money. And the more time you spend just completely locked into your phone, um, the more money they make. So I think that 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 gets me angry enough um, to where I I you know don't want to spend any more time um, 
doing it. Uh, two, two other books that I would actually recommend if you want to get a sense for that sort of like fury that you can build up and contempt that you could have for what they're trying to do. Uh, one is Jarrett Kobeck's I Hate the Internet. Um, that's a satirical novel that he wrote a few years back. Uh, it's absolutely furious. It's very funny. Um, but it's based in Silicon Valley and kind of like is railing against the ways in which the internet has um, completely destroyed our ability to have social lives, our political civic lives, and just the platform that it's given for misogynists and Nazis and terrible people. So that's one I would recommend. And I'm also just finishing um, Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, which is the funniest thing I've read in years. Um, But it's kind of about a social media influencer and just how her phone, which she calls like the portal, has completely taken over her life to the extent where she's not doing anything out in the real world. She's just, and she's thinking in like these kind of like semi ironic, you know, these weird thoughts that kind of happen if you spend so much time on the internet. So, um, I would definitely recommend those two if you want to get some kind of like humorous distance between you and the internet. Um, but yeah, that is what I've got for today. Um, please, uh, join in next week. Not sure what the topic's going to be yet, but I will be having another podcast next week as well as book recommendations on Monday and a column on Wednesday. Again, uh, if you want to support me, I have a Patreon. I have, um, paid subscriptions to my Substack. They're as low as $5 a month. You can even do less than that. Do $50 a year. You get to save a little bit on that. Uh, anything you do towards that helps me keep this going. Um, also anytime I recommend a book on the site and it's linked to bookshop, um, that is an affiliate link. Uh, that means I get a small kickback if you choose to buy that book through me. Um, I'll put a list of the books that I mentioned in here on the, in the, the episode notes of this, of this one. Um, if you buy through that, then I, uh, you know, I'll get a little bit of money. Um, also because it's bookshop, it supports local bookstores. It's not like Amazon where you're supporting the, uh, the worst fucking corporation in existence. I don't know if it's the worst. I mean, Exxon, Exxon might be, I don't know. There, there probably are worse corporations. Um, but anyway, um, those are all the ways you can support me. Another way is just by liking, sharing, telling people about this. Um, I hope you enjoyed. If you've got any feedback, leave it in the comments or send me an email. Uh, I love hearing back and uh, getting a better sense of what to do in the future. Uh, Have a great week, guys. I will talk to you soon.